Hello, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, so in this episode, I'll be looking at um, some more of The Whisperer in Darkness uh, by Lovecraft. Um, this is the second episode on this. Uh, I did one, you know, not long ago, looking at the first two chapters of The Whisperer in Darkness. There's eight chapters overall. We'll look at the middle chapters today, uh, three through five, I guess. Uh, this story was um, written in early 1930, and it was published in August 1931 in Weird Tales. This is his Vermont story. It's also the first of a series of stories that do a lot of world building and really kind of move Lovecraft's works to to another level. Not that his earlier stuff's not good, but it's really a much more distinctive type of cosmos and mythos that we see Lovecraft piecing together here. We talked a little bit about this in our look at Fungi from Yugoth, which I think also kind of contributes to this. And the next story, At the Mountains of Madness, does this even more. So um, I really like the first part of the story. In fact, it's my favorite part of the story where it's really all about like legends and, and, and like myth and skepticism and how a scientific minded person may interpret mythology and how people who are less skeptical, more open-minded, or have different experiences may may see these things, take these up, these kind of experiences or stories at face value, um, which is really something that's been running through a lot of Lovecraft's work, right? It's like this tension between vernacular traditions and the academic traditions, and it really comes to a head here with our main character, uh, Will Marth, who's a professor like of English at at Miskatonic University. And he hears about this flood in Vermont, which seemed to expose some bodies after the flood uh, of some kind of alien creatures or some kind of something that seems tied to various mythologies, including Indian stories and, and even myths from around the world. And he is a skeptic about these things. Um, and he actually published his stories about this, really trying to get at the folklore of it all. And he gets challenged by a guy named Henry Akeley who is our second major character in this story. And he writes a very long letter to him saying, you know, yeah, I understand how publicly you really can't be, you know, say this stuff is real, but I'm telling you it's real. And I have the experiences. I live in rural Vermont. I know about these things. I've been investigating for quite a while and I have, I have evidence. I have footprints, I have photographs and I have a phonograph or I have a record, right? A recording he made with a, with a early home recorder device. Which, which did exist. You could make records out of blank records, uh, dictaphones, they were called. Um, so he has all this evidence, and he says, I'm going to send you that, that evidence. And so he gets this, and then he starts to, Wilmar starts to dig around his, on his own and look at texts like, he even looks at the Necronomicon. He looks at other mythology, and he studies the evidence that he's already been provided with. The letter, or the, the phonograph record, comes later. So he doesn't get all the evidence yet. But he has some of it and he, you know, starts to investigate and he finds there might be something to this. So his mind opens up a little bit. So, what, you know, we, in this story, we've got this nice kind of Mulder Scully um, tension early on. But our, our main character is fairly open minded. Um, and that's sort of what we left off on. So the early conclusions, if we just step back a, a second, is he says, or this is Lovecraft writing, but this is Will Marth is the narrator. For one thing, we virtually decided that these morbidities and the hellish Himalayan Miga were one in the same order of incarnated nightmare. 
they were also absorbing zoological conjectures, which I would have referred to Professor Dexter in my own college, but for Aqueous imperative command to tell no one of the matter before us. End quote. So he at least starts to think that these stories are so similar. These stories around the world of the similar creatures are similar enough to suggest a need for greater greater evidence. Right? So, but it's a little it's a, chapter two ends a little ominously with Quote, one specific thing we were leading up to was the deciphering of the hieroglyphics on that infamous black stone, a deciphering which might well place us in possession of secrets deeper and more dizzying than any formerly known demands. So he realizes how important what he's discovered is. So that leads us into chapter three. Now, the middle five, the middle three chapters here, the ones I want to talk about today, really center on the, the the correspondence between Akeley and and Wilmarth. And some parts of this are kind of extra humorous because there's this whole subplot of the dogs, uh, of, of Akeley buying or getting more dogs from the pound to guard his house. They keep being killed off uh, by these Migos, by these creatures. It seems he's under some kind of siege by these creatures who know he's kind of informed outsiders and he's figured out something. So they're trying to silence him. And Wilmarth is getting these increasingly like frantic letters from from Akeley. And, and then we get also he also gets fake letters, presumably sent by the Migo or their agents trying to trick him or shut him up. And then finally, we get a very, very weird letter, a very long letter where Akeley just changes his mind and says, says oh, I met them and they're really chill. And you got to come over and bring all the evidence I gave you. Make sure you bring that stuff. But we're going to talk about it and you're going to find out just how awesome they are. And, you know, they've opened up this whole new understanding of the universe. So that's in, that's in rough what happens in 3, 4, 5, uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Whisper and Darkness. It's really fun to read, I think, the, the way of telling the story through letters. And here the timeline becomes very important because, like, letters are always coming, back, coming a few days after the events. So he's reading things and something, like, something else has already happened back in Vermont. So he doesn't get the news about that later. So he's making decisions with like old news all the time. So it's actually kind of important to pay attention to the timeline. Um, so just to review that, he got his first letter from Akeley on, in May, right? So it's at the end of June is where chapter three begins. So it's been, you know, a good month of after the first correspondence. So chapter three opens with... Uh, end of june it's uh yeah towards the end of june so he gets the phonograph record from battleboro from um where akeley is up in vermont um and he, he he's he writes that he's kind of freaked out about sending this and he has to be really secretive about this and it's very important not to tell anyone else about what's going on because you know he's he's like a paranoid kook that's how he kind of comes off which i think is a really nice element of the story is he does appear to be a, a nut job when we first meet him. I talked about this in the last episode too, when the, the first letter is really wild. Um, but this record is pretty good evidence. It's pretty interesting. And it was actually taken like 13 years earlier, back in 1915. So we know Akeley has been following these people for quite a while or these creatures, right? So now this is really cool. So, he goes out into like the woods to record this phonograph with this dictaphone, you know, to record this with this dictaphone to record this record. 
And he does this on May's Eve, a Sabbath night, right? So this is something Lovecraft really likes to do, especially in his later tales, is is build off of like old traditions, right? Old, maybe not that often celebrated traditions in the New World, but traditions that are kind of rooted in old Christianity or even rooted in deeper religions and religious traditions. Um, which is, um, in this case, it's May Eve. Which I don't know much about this tradition at all, actually. But um, we're going to see this again, like in the witch house story, the dreams of the witch house, where that uh, kind of a, a early Christian festival becomes really crucial uh, in that story. But what's great about this is there's this implication that these creatures had been here like for a long time, right? That the traditions come out of our early rea reactions and relations with these creatures rather than out of these human-made traditions, right? Otherwise, why would they follow human religious festivals or anything? So he plays the record. Wilmarth plays the record and he hears it. And it's basically a, a ritual. And it allows Lovecraft to do quite a lot of world building here connecting these Migos, these fungi from Yugoth, if you will, to, to some of his other writings and to the writers, writings of other weird fiction writers that he was associated with, people like uh, Clark Ashton Smith and I think eventually even some Robert E. Howard uh, gods and geographies get included into his mythos as well. So he writes this. Uh, well, this is what's in the, the recording. Is the Lord of the Woods even to you and the gifts of the men from Lang, so that the wells of night and the gulfs of space and from the gulfs of space to the wells of night, ever the praises of great Cthulhu, of Sastagwa, and of him who is not to be named, ever their praises and abundance to the black goat of the woods, Ia Shubnigareth, the goat with a thousand young, which of course is a kind of a famous chant in uh, kind of the Lovecraft mythos. Uh, there's a little bit more mention here of Azathoth, of, of Yugoth, of Naral-Optep, um, and, and other gods are all mentioned here. And there's even human voices, and there's these strange buzzing voices tied to it, so there seems to be human and non-human voices tied together, right? So that's what really freaks out Wilmarth, more than just the fact that there seems to be some nuts in the woods engaging in some strange rituals. What really seems to freak him out most is that you have this interaction between human and non-human voices. Uh, he, uh, we get here, quote, to me, with my firsthand impression of the actual sounds, with my knowledge of the background and surrounding circumstances, the voice was a monstrous thing. It swiftly followed the human voice in ritualistic response, but in my imagination, it was a morbid echo winging its way across unimaginable abysses from unimaginable outer hells, end quote. Right. And he actually tries to investigate the biology of this speech, which is uh, what a good scientist should do to, to say, well, could this be a human making these noises with his own ability? Right. But he says, no, it's just these are sounds that the human voice is not capable of making without some extreme mutation um, or, you know, something supernatural. So they seem to be sounds outside of Earth and earthly experience. And he kind of gets there, gets to that conclusion through the biology of the speech. And then once he kind of justifies that there's something to this, he then gets into the rituals and the, the, what the text itself of the phonograph. And he, he realizes, because he's an English 
folklorists and an English professor, he knows that these creatures are rooted in old religions, right? You know, quote, the primordial customs and the crypt or elder religions of mankind. Um, and there also seems to be this alliance between the creatures and the humans. But there's another element to this, and that's the 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 cosmic, the the the, the cosmic element of it, the, the the astronomy of it, right? Because we get in here as well um, the mentions of Yugoth, the mentions of of the cosmos in the in the record, and here's how he interprets it. Quote, the blasphemies which appeared on Earth, it was hinted, came from the dark planet Yugoth at the rim of the solar system. And this was itself merely the populist outpost of a frightful interstellar race whose ultimate source must lie far outside even the Einsteinian space-time continuum or greatest known cosmos. This is, of course, just hinted at in the record, but Wilmarth makes this connection. So with these conclusions, uh, completed he starts to get more correspondence from Akeley and a lot of it are you know is Akeley talked about being cautious but also suggesting that they're kind of on to him and he's very anxious they seem to be knowing he's sending out letters and sending out materials so we got the footprints the photographs of the footprints we got the the hieroglyphics on the black stone we have the phonographs so he's got all this evidence right and he's sharing it you know with with Wilmarth. So he's kind of really cautious about that and, and a bit hesitant, and a bit regretting, you know, speaking too loudly um, about this. And, and we also learning that he's being harassed. He says, uh, about this time, the second week in July, another letter of mine went astray as I learned through an anxious communication from Akeley. So his letters are being intercepted. After that, he told me to address him no more at Townsend, but to mail all mail, to send all mail care of the general delivery at Brattleboro. So his letters are being inter intercepted. Um, so now the final piece of evidence that's that's he's waiting is this black stone. And he was going to send it in this box, and this definitely gets intercepted by some agents of the Migo, and Wilmarth kind of investigates this a little bit, but doesn't get it quite um, quite know the answer why or why this black stone was was taken this is like the big part of the mystery right this is i think is a something that would have explained much more to to wilmarth had he been able to get a hold of it so but he still has plenty of evidence right that he keeps him interested and keeps him you know moving towards the the truth of what he's he's been exposed to uh, by akeley now, Akeley is aware that the, the, the box was stolen and the, and the stone was lost. So that, that's chapter three of this. So chapter three really centers on this kind of the more high-end evidence that Akeley was trying to present with Wilmarth. And one of the two pieces gets through. The piece that gets through is the, is the phonograph record, but denied him is this black stone with these this carvings and writings on it. So then we get to chapter four. And chapter four... It's kind of really the fun chapter here to to read because we actually get the the correspondence between well we get we get Akeley's letters we don't get actually Wilmarth's responses at all but we get Akeley's letters and this is that this is where we see like the dogs playing a major role and we see the or we hear about the Migos kind of laying siege to his house and killing his dogs and the dogs are freaking out all the time so he has to get more dogs from the pound and they get killed off and this is all happening in August of uh, 
you know, so a couple months, you know, after the first correspondence began. And the letters get really, really frantic. And, and here I'll give you one example. Um, this is what Akeley t explains to him. There had been frightful happenings on the night of the 12th and 13th. Bullets flying outside the farmhouse and three of the 12 great dogs being found shot dead in the morning. There were myriads of claw prints on the roads with the human prints of Walter Brown among them. Akeley had started to telephone to Brattleboro for more dogs, but the wire had gone dead before he had a chance to say much. Later, he went to Brattleboro in his car and learned that there that the lineman had found the main telephone cable nearly cut at a point where it ran through the deserted hills north of Newfang, unquote. This is still in the early days of, of telephone, especially in these rural areas, so there may have not been that many lines. As we saw in the Dunwich horror, there was just the one party line to the, like the post office that everyone had to use. Um, now, he gets this telegram from Akeley, which is really bizarre. It, it just says, appreciate your position, but can do nothing. Take no action yourself, or can only harm both. Wait for explanation. Henry A-K-E-L-Y. And it's, he figures out it's not from Akeley. And he asks around, and the guy who, who did this was a strange sandy-haired man with a curiously thick droning voice, though more than this he could not learn. Uh, and then he got the misspelling of Akeley. Akeley, as Henry Akeley spells the name, has two E's. So this seems to be trying to throw him off of the, the trail. Um, Akeley starts to, some letters still get through, though, when Akeley makes it clear. He's thinking of just leaving Vermont. This is too freaky for him. He's under too much threat, you know. But what keeps him here, right? What keeps Akeley here? It's the same thing that's kept him here for all these years when he known this stuff was going on. That is his feeling of obligation to the family homestead and to this family land. Even though, like, his son has gone off to California, he's thinking of going there. But he wants to kind of resolve all this first. So then we get uh, a couple letters. Um, like one he gets on September 5th, but it deals with events on September 3rd. I actually looked up the calendar for 1929. Uh, and you can find these dates all match up with, uh, with the days of the week. So uh, Lovecraft was careful enough about that, as we might expect. Um, but he's getting, he, he relates these stories about these attacks on the farm house, the killing of the dogs, the running out of ammunition. Uh, he shoots one of them, um, but it, its body sort of dissolves and there's no evidence of it afterwards. Um, it's great stuff in here, including things like they start to try to talk to him. Uh, he, he writes this. This is Akeley's letter. I think I'm going crazy. It may be that all I've ever written you is a dreamer madness. It was bad enough before, and this time it's too much. They talked to me last night, talked in that cursed buzzing voice and told me things I dare not repeat to you. I heard them plainly over the barking of the dogs, and once when they were drowned out, the human voice helped them. Keep out of this, Wilmarth. It's worse than either you or I ever suspected. They don't mean to let me go to California now. They want to take me off alive or what theoretically and mentally amounts to alive, not only do you got, but beyond that, away outside the galaxy, end quote. Now, he knows this because it seems they, they can communicate somewhat telepathically with, with humans. He's not, now he starts saying, you got to destroy this evidence. you got to abolish this. So he, now we're back to this kind of classical Lovecraft trope of something being revealed and then figuring out that's a mistake and then trying to abolish that evidence. And that's effectively what happens in the story, even though this is eventually going to be instigated by the, the Migos themselves are going to be the ones who 
are able to take actions to collect all this evidence and, and ultimately destroy it. But he's actually saying better to smash the record before it's too late. Uh, we get a letter a few days later, which is even more frantic, telling him again, suppress the truth, smash the record. Um, this is when he gets the dead one. Yeah, this is when he, he or the, I think it was killed by one of the dogs, right? But the body just sort of dissolved. He tried to photograph it, but, you know, it couldn't be photographed with normal technology of photography. Um, all they're leaving behind really are these footprints. Now, I, I really enjoy this section of the story. Thematically, it's it's not the most important. I, I guess you see the introduction of this idea of let's start trying to erase this and move beyond it, move to California, destroy the record. Forget ever told you anything. You know, Akeley starts to tell him that. But also, at the same time, while he's trying to move away, Wilmarth, our, our main character, our narrator, is becoming more interested and much more a believer. Um, even though he's getting kind of freaked out by it too, because, you know, it's one thing to read the letters of a madman like he did initially, but now these letters are someone under threat, being attacked, and, and there seems to be this physical evidence that backs up much of what he's saying. Um, so he decides to kind of be more proactive. Quote, the letter frankly plunged me into the blackest of terrors. I did not know what to say in answer, but scratched off some incoherent words of advice and encouragement and sent them by registered mail. I recall urging Akeley to move to Brattleboro at once and place himself under the protection of the authorities, adding that I would come to that town with the phonograph record and help convince the courts of his sanity. It was time too, I think I wrote, to alarm the people generally against this thing in their midst. It will be observed that at this moment of stress, my own belief in... All that Akeley had told and claimed was virtually complete. Though I did not think his failure to get a picture of the dead monster was not due to any freak of nature, but due to some excited slip of his own. So he hesitates a little bit on this one point that, that you know, it doesn't make any sense that you couldn't photograph the body. You know, maybe he just wasn't able to take a photograph for another reason. But in all other ways, he seems to be a believer. So then we come to chapter five. Um, so he gets this, another letter. This one's, uh, it reaches him on September 8th, but it's dated September 6th. So he's pretty consistent throughout this part of the story where it takes about two days to get from Vermont to to Arkham. I guess that's where he's living. He's a professor at Miskatonic University. Um, but this letter is different. It's first, it's typed, right? And he, you know, he, he says it's very meticulously typed. Quote, the text though was marvelously accurate for a Tyro's work, and I concluded that Akeley must have used a machine at some previous period, perhaps in college. To say that the letter revealed me would be only fair, yet beneath the relief lay a substranium of uneasiness. If Akeley had been sane in his terror, was he now sane in his deliverance? So what is his deliverance? Well, this letter, it's quite long. It goes on for like five pages. It's a very, very detailed uh, account. Now, it's apparently not by Akeley, right? Because it's typed. Now, but they fixed the, the typo of his name that they made earlier on the telegram, but it does seem not to be by Akeley. We, that's, you know, we figured that out later when we realized something has happened to Akeley. But basically, this letter is a totally different tone. And it's saying like, wow, like everything's fine. I've met these guys and they're just like of a different culture. We just don't understand them, but they're really, really awesome. Right. 
Um, and that the part of the problem is that they've hired like local or they've had their, their local human allies or kind of ignoramus backwoods types and they're suspicious types. And that's why I didn't trust them. He mentions one guy, Walter Brown, who's kind of a backwoods folk. He, he, you know, there's like actually a couple class elements in some of Akeley's letters where he says, like, I could get help, but the people here are all like inbred hicks and I don't want anything to do with them. Walter Brown, and, and maybe they're tied to these people, these or these aliens. Um, Walter Brown is one of them, he, so he writes, "He prejudiced me vastly against them. Actually, I have never, they have never knowingly harmed men, but have often been cruelly wronged or spied on by our species." End quote. There's a whole secret cult of evil men. That's kind of adding on the quote. A man of your mystical erudition will understand me when I link them with Haster and the Yellow Sign. End quote. Which is a great call out to uh, the, the Chalmers, Chambers, sorry, Chambers stories, uh, the Yellow Sign, which now have been kind of seen as being Lovecraft adjacent in a way. Of course, they were written before many of the Lovecraft stories, but, but Lovecraft incorporated them to a certain degree, like here, into his mythology. Um, now he's so he, he's saying what's cool about this is a suggestion and again if this is by the the Meagle agents themselves we can kind of take their word for it I guess you know they're saying there's a long history between humanity and these creatures and, and that kind of feeds into the earliest chapter where we get this description of the mythology that's this whole idea that of the story is that this real physical experiences that are happening in recent history, like the flood and Akeley's stuff going on in Akeley's farms are directly tied to, you know, folklore stories, right? They're not, the, the comparisons are too, too clear to be just an accident or just to, to give up to kind of interpretation or the collective unconscious. No, like there, there's something to it and that they kind of come from different cultures, right? So the letter gets also very, very scientific, talking about their physiology, their language, their, their, their structure. They are fungus, right? They're, uh, they're a type of fungus, as best as he can describe. It gets very, very scientific, more than you could imagine that Akeley could have known by himself. It's kind of like the Migos trying to explain themselves to, to Wilmarth. I guess I'll take that name, right? That's, that's. You know, I guess they're not really called that, right? That's just what human mythology sort of called them. But I'll keep the name. These creatures from Yugoth, anyways. Um, then we get to the cosmic element in the story, too, where in this letter, where not only are they like, you know, not only just describe these physical features, you describe where they're from. He describes what their kind of ambitions are, that they are kind of this uh, a species that transcends space-time. And that they have the technology to allow humans to explore the universe. And he's like, I really want to do this and I want you to be part of it. So come over, come over to my house in Vermont, make the trip as soon as you can. Um, he actually sets it up. He tells them actually which trains to take, you know, and he says, oh, and please, please bring the record player, bring the, the letters, bring all the letters, you know, because it's kind of a running gag in this story. Eh? I think it's a, it's a bit of a gag where... The, st the letters get taken um, in the final act of the of the tale. So how does he recreate these letters in such detail? Well, it seems that Wilmarth has this uh, eidetic memory, and he says, I, "I can I can 
I have this ability to recreate these things from memory and he does it again and again. It just services the story in a way because the letters have to be taken for this to make full sense. Uh, and that's certainly what they're, that's why they're calling him there. The, the real interest of Walmart is to, I don't think it's to introduce him to the cosmos, although they try to do it, I guess. We'll talk about that in the next episode. Really, they want that evidence. They don't want the secret getting out too much. But at the same time, it seems the secret is out. It's in folklore, right? But as long as it's there, as long as it's kind of hidden in the shadows of stories and mythology, it's not a real threat. It's it's when something concrete about them gets known to the broader public and the academic community that that becomes um, dangerous. So, um, so that's it. So yeah, the the final the final line of the letter is awaiting word and hoping to see you shortly with the phonograph record and all my letters and the Kodak prints. I am yours in anticipation, Henry W. Aikley. So um, then he thinks. So the last couple pages of this chapter then are just Wilmar thinking like, what happened to this guy, right? Why is he so different? He can't really quite explain that. That maybe the revelation of whatever was revealed to him was so great that it changed his personality. Um, that he has that same kind of inquisitive mind that he wants to know the truth like I do. So there's a kind of Wilmar sort of justifying this saying, well, maybe he's just like me. He's another seeker, another, you know, someone who wants to know the truth. And that that's something that he can appreciate and that piques his own interest in, uh, in this, this mystery. So anyways, he sends a, a letter to to him saying, okay, I'll come and give some details. And Akeley sends a telegraph back saying, all right, I'll meet you there. Or we'll meet. It doesn't say Akeley will meet. He says, we'll meet 108 train Wednesday. Don't forget record and letters. That's in the telegram. So um, that's it. So a couple of days later, he's going to head up to Vermont to, to meet his fate uh, and hopefully try to get to the bottom of this 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 mystery that was um, revealed to him way back in May, a few months earlier. So there's not that much, I guess, to talk about. I, I think there's certainly a lot going on. It's 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 really a, kind of there's a lot of plot going on, I guess. But there are some really interesting themes here. I, I think again, this tension between the scientific and the folklore never is far from the surface of this of this tale, right? I think that's really interesting. I think Akeley's shift from, like, you got to know about this and you got to know the truth about this to destroy the records and kind of forget about this. And I'll try to do the same. I'll try to leave uh, Vermont and go to California. This, this, this effort to try to abolish the evidence versus kind of reveal it and, and expose it. And the solution ends up being, right, we'll expose this to you, but the evidence stays with us right that's uh, that's what ends up happening and then we get this kind of turn from the migos just being like some kind of strange forest creatures that sort of lived in alongside humans for many centuries millennium but they're you know it's not clear if they're folklore or not or just monsters from mythology to being actually cosmic beings to being aliens so this starts to become much more of a science fiction tale by the middle parts um, but mostly it's just getting us to this moment when Wilmart says, okay, I'm going to Vermont, um, which leads us to the final three chapters. So I'll talk about that in the next episode. 
In the next episode, I'll talk about chapter six, seven, eight, and get us to the the, the conclusion of this really, really nice um, story. One of my favorite Lovecraft stories. So, uh, anyways, that's going to be it for now. So, uh, if you have any thoughts or questions about anything I said, uh, send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. Um, I'll be back shortly with my final thoughts about the Whisper in Darkness. Um, but that'll be it for now. Um, see you then. Thanks for listening. Oh,